Good morning. There is a new human being in our midst today. Alex and Amy, congratulations. Ian Simmons Mitchell. All of a handful, oh, he waved. I saw that, that was good. He was like, present. Uh, congratulations, so exciting. Um, yes, yeah. Nothing like new life. First, do no harm. You've probably heard this before, uh, right? It's a, a phrase that, that many uh, who are training to be doctors or nurses might take in the, the Hippocratic Oath, uh, which, when you sort of stop to just take it in and of itself, is setting a pretty low bar for doctors, <laughs> right? Do no harm. Uh, the, the surest way to not do harm is just to not interact at all, <laughs> Uh, for that doctor to leave you alone. But clearly, there's a lot more nuance to it than that. And clearly, the, the vision of being a doctor is, is not simply not doing harm, but actually helping to bring health, right? It's much more active, it's much more engaged than that phrase, do no harm. Uh, the same thing, I think, can be true, uh, or, or can, can be a way that we think about the Ten Commandments. We, we've spent uh, last week looking at the first few commandments, we're spending this week looking at the, last, uh, the second part of the Ten Commandments. This part has a number of you shalt nots, right? Thou shalt nots. You don't do this, don't do this. And if we read them simply at face value, I think similarly, it's setting the bar fairly low for us. Um, and again, uh, when we look at not murdering and not stealing and not committing adultery, the surest way to not do those things is just to avoid people altogether and you'll be all right. <laughs> Obviously, Steve, that's not what God wants for us. And that's not the intention behind these. He said, sign me up. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> um, this is not the vision for the flourishing Christian life that God has for us. And, and, and what he wanted in his people Israel when he gave them the Ten Commandments was not simply that they would avoid each other, but rather that they would engage with each other in a way that Jesus summarizes as loving each other as you love yourself. Um, actually, <laughs> speaking of signing me, me up for this uh, vision of just ignoring each other, this is, that's C.S. Lewis's vision of hell, right? In The Great Divorce, he, it's this, uh, this imaginative um, storytelling of a bus trip through heaven and hell. And hell, one of the aspects of hell is ever-increasing isolation from each other, right? That's hell. Uh, that is not what is intended by the Ten Commandments. Um, it's a vision, of a uh, kingdom vision, of deep engagement with each other, of loving each other as God has loved us. And as Jesus said, we, we spent time in this last week, that loving our neighbors as ourselves, along with loving God with everything that we have, Everything hangs on these two things, right? All of the law and the prophets, all of our lives as Christ followers hangs on following these two commandments. So we are going to read uh, the last few commandments from Deuteronomy 5. It won't be on the screen. Uh, it's a little bit of a longer section. I'm just going to read it. If you want to look along with your Bibles, read along or on your phone. Deuteronomy 5, starting in verse 12. We're picking up kind of right in the middle of the Ten Commandments here. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Lord God, be our teacher this morning. As we consider these commandments that your people have considered and tried to live into for generations. Even on initial pass, God, we recognize that, uh, that we fail constantly and we need your mercy and your grace to both forgive us for our sin, but also to, to build in us an increased desire to live as you call us to live. So Lord, have mercy on us and thank you for your word. Amen. So just to recap where we're at here in Deuteronomy, Moses has gathered the Israelites. They're on the cusp of entering the promised land. They've spent 40 years wandering in the desert, and he gathers them together to both tell the story of where they've been and also to cast a vision for what life is going to be like in the promised land. He's, he's, they're about to become a nation. They're about to have, have land, and, and he's saying, this is the kind of people that we're going to be. This is the kind of people that God is calling us to be a people who, whose culture is defined by loving God and loving each other. We also, last week, talked about how we're, we're celebrating the 500 years since Martin Luther first nailed up his, his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. Uh, and he, in his, uh, in his smaller catechism, takes these commandments and uh, just tries to very simply explain some of the implications of these. And he does so by acknowledging the thing that we're not supposed to do, but by also spinning it around and saying, well, what's the, what's the positive implication of this commandment? I think that's a really important thing for us to consider as we read these commandments. Uh, for example, for the sixth commandment, Luther says, we should fear and love God. That's the, that's the foundation for following the commandments, our fear and love for God, so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. That's the, that's the positive flip side of not murdering. <laughs> Helping and supporting our neighbors in every physical need that they have. This exercise of thinking about the, the positive uh, flip side to a negative command is something that is a good practice for us uh, whenever we come across uh, some of these negative commands that we find in Scripture, to think about, well, what's the, what's the positive vision uh, of a way forward um, that, that this command is encouraging us towards? I have to think about this whenever I'm driving home, uh, heading up 3rd Avenue. If you hit 3rd Avenue that way and go up about two and a half miles, we live right on 3rd. And the speed limit on 3rd is 30 miles an hour. 
which sometimes feels very slow. <laughs> uh, but I have to remind myself that the vision, the positive vision of that speed limit is for a safe community, a community where my kids can walk and bike along third in safety. Um, and I, I need to remind myself of that vision when I'm tempted to go much past 30, because I do want that. Uh, we live on third. We have to walk or bike along third, and there's no sidewalks there. <laughs> Uh, whenever we want to go anywhere. And so that vision is compelling to me. It's compelling enough to actually keep me under 30. Um, because certainly I want other people driving that slow on the road that I live on. So I also am compelled to do that as well. I want to look at two of these commands that we looked at and to, and to consider just in a little more depth, to allow our imagination to, to kind of play a little bit this morning to trust that the Spirit is going to guide our imagination as we look at commands to not do something and to consider, well, what kind of life is this actually casting a vision for? What's the positive side to this negative command? So, the one that we already mentioned uh, and, and quoted Luther from, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. This means that we as God's people are fanatically pro-life. And not in the sense that you read about in the newspapers or you see about in the news. Um, it's a much deeper, fuller, richer understanding of what it means to be pro-life and anti-death. That's what this means. right? That we are vigorously pro-life no matter the age or stage or situation that that life resides in. Uh, womb to tomb is the other way that I've heard about it. right? Pro-life womb to tomb. So this means... Uh, this means that we care actually about things like um, health care. Uh, this is several steps down the, the process here, but thinking about, uh, it's not just about letting lives get born, right? Protecting the life in the womb so that it gets born, but it's also about once that life is born, making sure that it stays healthy. That's part of what it means to be pro-life uh, and to be, not, <laughs> to be uh, anti-murderers, right? <laughs> this, is the, this is the commandment. Um, that, that we care not just that we have access to, to health, but that others do as well. Uh, and far smarter people than I can figure out how to make that work. I confess that I don't know. Um, but I do know that it, it, that it matters if life matters. Um, another implication of this, if, if we are made in the image of God, and part of how we are made in the image of God is to be those who are working, who are contributing to the world in which we live through their work. Uh, that we are to be people who are excited about creating opportunities for work. That that in and of itself as well uh, is, is a, a pro-life uh, pro work. Um, and this has, been, this has been a way that I've started to think more about what the green bean does. When we first started the green bean, I the vision that I had for it was that this was a place where neighbors can come and gather over a cup of coffee and get to know each other. And this is the way that we get to know and love our neighbors in Greenwood neighborhood. And it is that. It still is that. It always has been that. But increasingly, I'm, I'm grateful that we have the chance to create good jobs for people, for our baristas and for our bakers and for our managers. Um, jobs where they are paid fairly and where they get to take the gifts and the skills that God has given them and their love for coffee or for food and for people uh, and put that to work, creating this beautiful space where uh, hospitality is the order of the day, right? 
This is, uh, this is part of what it means uh, to be pro-life and to be not murderers, right? I mean, this, this, it seems so far away to talk about not killing people and creating jobs, but do you see how we, when, when we are vigorously pro-life um, and vigorously seeing everyone as made in the image of God and valuing that life, no matter whether it's one that we think is contributing to society in the ways that we think that should be, or whether it's someone that's vulnerable, someone that's struggling, each life has value to God. And we are concerned then as, as followers of, of, of God and of Christ, we're concerned about their health, we're concerned about their opportunities to, to work. So we take these commands not to do things, and we take them, we take them deeper. And it takes, it takes imagination, it takes a little bit of thoughtfulness and reflection. And, uh, and Jesus actually helps us in this in his Sermon on the Mount. Um, he, he says, regarding this particular commandment, that uh, we are not even to think or speak ill of someone. That if we do that, uh, that is in and of itself also committing murder, right? That he takes it from this physical action that we're to refrain from. And he says, no, it's about your heart. It's about your attitude towards your brother or your sister. The last commandment here, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The positive flip side to this you shall not command has to do, of course, with my attitude towards my neighbor and towards their possessions, but it also has to do with my attitude towards my own life and my possessions. The command to not covet or to not be envious is an invitation to contentment with my own life and contentment with my own possessions. And an invitation to celebrate and to work hard at at protecting um, that which my neighbor has. It also, I think, reveals maybe a little bit of a darker side that we sometimes, in our envy, wish our neighbors to suffer and to feel the discontentment that we feel. And I think that's because we often buy into this sense that there's not enough in the world, and so for me to be content and for me to be happy, that must mean that someone else has to be unhappy. Uh, that if I'm to have, that there must be then have-nots. But God's vision, the positive side to this commandment, is that we have contentment with what God has given to us. We recognize what we have as a gift from God, and we don't compare our lives to others. We don't wish harm on them so that they would feel the same discontentment we do. We don't long for the things that, that they have or, or feel that we've been shortchanged. And we have a freedom then to take what we do have, to view it as a gift and to share it with others, to be generous. And it builds up in us uh, a trust that there's enough. That God in his mercy has given us enough in this world. Not just for me, not just for us here, but for us worldwide. One of my seminary professors was uh, he, he said on a number of occasions that 
What we don't have in this world is a, a food shortage problem. What we have is a distribution problem. That, I think, is, is what gets built in us when we understand that this command to not covet is actually also an invitation to contentment with what we have and a celebration of what our neighbor has. So this, uh, this commandment, this summary of the law, to love our neighbor as ourselves, is quoted a number of times throughout Scripture. Jesus himself, when he says it, he's quoting from Leviticus. Uh, Paul references this in Romans. And then James, when he's writing his letter to the early church, he talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. But what James does is very helpful for us, and I think it's, it's an example of what we're supposed to do with this commandment, which is this. He takes it and then applies it to a very particular situation in the life of the church. And so I think as an example to us of what we're supposed to do with this commandment, I want to look at James chapter 2. And there's just going to be, there's like two verses from this passage that I'm going to highlight and put up on the screen, but I'm going to read a few verses starting uh, in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And then skipping ahead to verse 8, and this will be on the screen here. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. James is taking this, what he calls the royal command, which I love. The royal command to love our neighbors as ourselves. And he's applying it to this particular situation in the church. It's something that the early church was was tempted to do, which was to treat people differently based on what they could offer, what they could provide. And it's fortunate for us that we never do the same thing. Yeah. It's a pertinent word for us today as well. This discriminating, this making judgments between each other. And I think it is often motivated by what we think we can get from other people. (laughs) Uh, We're to to love each other. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I think what this passage reveals is that, as James is addressing favoritism, is that we, uh, we are typically our own favorites, right? So if we are our own favorites and we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves, then how can we show favoritism? How can we say some are more valuable than others? How can, we, how can we make this distinction? All are to be our favorites, right? I, uh, I struggle with this. I'm probably the only one in this room that does, but I do. 
And, uh, and I, w- I was reflecting on, on the challenge that uh, I think a lot of us have probably seen in this neighborhood and, and around Seattle. Uh, there, the, the folks that, that I run into who are sleeping in the doorways who um, are addicted to heroin or to something else or to several things, um, I, I struggle to know how to relate to them. And I'm, if I'm honest, oftentimes, I, I, I want them to go away and be someone else's problem. And I have had to, countless times, come back and say, okay, what does loving my neighbor as myself mean here? And it's not an easy answer. It's not a one-size-fits-all answer. But um, I know that it means not just ignoring them and just kind of letting whatever happens, happens. It's not so laissez-faire. I, I care about this community. I care about what's happening to them, continuing to let them self-destruct this way. That's not loving them. Nor is loving them wishing that they would just kind of go away and disappear and be someone else's problem. So, I don't have the easy answer, but that question motivated Summer and I uh, maybe nine, ten months ago to go spend a day at Union Gospel Mission just learning about the resources. And I think that was, that was our, it's, it's a baby step, but that was our baby step of how do we love our neighbors as ourselves? What resources are out there? What can we learn from people that know more about this than we do? And again, we have no magic bullets, Right? But that was that first step for us of at least gaining awareness of the resources that are available and one way that we might love these people as we love ourselves. So we read, we read these commandments. We hear the thou shalt not, but we, we, we think deeper about it and we see a vision, a kingdom vision of a flourishing life, a flourishing people motivated ultimately by God's love for us that we then extend to those around us. But this is, this is too much for us to do all the time. Who can, who can walk through life always thinking, feeling, and acting out of love towards those that we come into contact with and those who we don't come into contact with, right? It's not just about the, those physically prox- proximate neighbors. It's about our neighbors in Africa. I mean, that was the video that we're watching today about World Hunger Day, right? It's too great a task for us, and yet it's the only vision of the Christian life that's adequate to what Christ has called us to. And so we find ourselves utterly dependent on an inner working of the Holy Spirit, working to change our hearts, right? Changing our inclinations, changing our desires. It's interesting to me that the, uh, you know, many of these commandments are uh, prohibitions on specific actions, right? Don't, don't murder. Um, and, and we have to do some work to kind of suss out what's behind that. What's the positive vision behind that? But this last one uh, deals directly with our desires, right? Our desires, our loves. How do our loves change? How does the Spirit come in and over time, work on us so that the things we love are no longer the things of this world, but they're the things that God loves. I think the first step 
well, the first step is recognizing that we need that change, that we need that, the, uh, the intervention of the Holy Spirit to change us. And I think the second step is simply to begin praying that that would take place, opening our hearts up to the work of the Spirit, that as we go about our work, that as we walk through our neighborhoods, that as we live life together as the church, that our loves are transformed by God's Spirit. I cut off that James passage just a little bit early. There's two verses here that he wraps up this reflection on the royal law with that I want to I end with this this morning. He's talked about the royal law, loving our neighbors as ourselves, and how specifically that forbids favoritism. That's just one of the areas that that law touches. We don't show favorites. All are equal. All are welcome to the table. All are on even footing at the foot of the cross. So his final encouragement is this. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, but mercy triumphs over justice. Over judgment, excuse me. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a law that gives freedom. That's not like any human law that I know of. This is how God's spirit is at work in us, is that we, over time, through his work, more and more, will naturally live this law out. So my prayer this morning is that we can open ourselves to that. That the Spirit would work in our imagination, that as we we hear this great big command to love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would have a Spirit-inspired imagination. That as we go to work, as we engage with our neighbors, as we engage with our family members, who sometimes we forget are also our neighbors, (laughs) that we would have a a creative imagination, a Spirit-filled imagination for what it means to love them as we love ourselves. And that God's Spirit would give us not only the ability to do that, but the desire to do that. We can do it because we've experienced the love of God. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ showed his love for us by offering his life as a sacrifice. We remember that when we come here every week. We come here also for strength to tackle this incredible vision that's been put before us of loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's not easy. It's a lifelong work. And it's a lifelong work that the Spirit is going to be doing in us. But with baby steps, to quote, what about Bob? With baby steps, we do this work with the Spirit's help. I'm going to leave a little bit of space just for some prayer. Uh, maybe there's a neighbor that, uh, that came to your mind as, as we've been thinking over this, this commandment this morning. Maybe there's a situation or, a, or a, a place in your upcoming week where you are anticipating that it's going to be difficult to follow through with this. Um, take these specific things that have come to mind and let's, let's lift them to the Lord in prayer this morning.